thanks for coming back for another episode of the Design Doc podcast. Today, I am talking with Osa Gaius, who is a functional programming connoisseur, I guess is what I would say. He is, you're, you're the founder of Parrot Mob, is that correct? That's correct. Cool. So, um, Osa, why don't you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been doing software-related things, and, and a little bit about Parrot Mob. I've been working in software for the last five years professionally, uh, but writing software for more than 10 years. Um, I currently am primarily focused on building my startup called Parrot Mob, which is an SMS marketing company. Cool. Um, so I watched one of your talks on functional programming, and you seem pretty excited about it, which is great. Uh, and I was just curious, can you tell me more about what functional programming is, and are you using functional languages or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. So I am really excited about functional programming, mostly because I think it's a really cool paradigm for building software. Um, so functional programming is just a style of writing computer software that assumes a couple of things. One is that you're writing primarily using functions. So you're moving data uh, through a series of steps, whether it's transformations um, or, or things of that nature, right? Uh, and then there are a couple of other tenets of functional programming that I think matter when thinking about a functional language. The first is, does the language default to immutability? So in other words, uh, can you not change uh, data or variables as you uh, perform a computation? Um, and then the second is, uh, to what extent is the language you're using uh, emphasizing you know, the, the pure use of functions that are composable? Um, I think there are some languages that claim to be functional that don't do those things, um, but the languages that I think are the best functional languages tend to adhere to those principles. The first being immutability, and then the second being the use of pure functions to get work done. Cool. And with uh, ParrotMob, for example, are you using any functional languages? Yes. So ParrotMob is written entirely in uh, Elixir, which is the backend language of choice. And then on the front end, we're using uh, React, uh, but in a very functional style. So it's uh, sort of React uh, as a functional language, not uh, sort of as an object-oriented language. Yeah, React has gotten way better about that over the past, uh, I guess, really a couple months or maybe a year with uh, functional components and hooks. I'm a huge fan. Same, same. Yeah, I think Redux sort of started that trend of uh, making sure that React can be a language that supports uh, functional programming in the first class. But I think stuff like hooks have definitely taken that to a, another level. I'm curious, did you look at any pure functional languages for the front end, like Elm or ClojureScript with React? Yes. Yeah, so we, I actually used ClojureScript for my first job out of school five years ago. Um, love it. Great language. Um, big fan of, of that community. I think for us, though, at ParrotMob, given that we're a startup trying to make money, um, the the added complexity of relearning closure script um was was a bit too much so we just chose to stick with react given that i'm not the only developer working on the front end um helps to have a language that other people can kind of slip into yeah i can completely relate to that i was building a an api um, built around podcasts a while back and i was writing it in closure and that was fine until i really needed someone to come in and help me and then I suddenly had to like teach them closure, and um, man, that's 
that's hard, it, especially if they don't have any functional experience and they jump straight into a, a, a Lisp or something similar. It is, it is really hard. Yeah, yeah. And I tend to, the older I get and the more software I write, I tend to not underestimate how hard it is because I think that can be a huge barrier for someone um, and can be kind of demoralizing. So I, I try to pick things that are good choices technically, but. I definitely, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I definitely respect that. It's very hard as a, um, I guess, like a technical co-founder to step away from the tools that you really want to use because you, you're excited about them and you love them to, to actually step back and say, these are the tools that I probably should use because I'm going to be able to hire people. I'm going to be able to onboard people. I'm going to be able to depend on a very large community to, to fix bugs and the framework and, th and things like that. So I, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's kind of one thing that's helped in that for me is I've spent the last three to four years of my career, mostly sort of in a management architecture role. Um, and that's one thing you quickly see is that your own technical love for something does not always translate to what's practically useful for your teammate to kind of pick up. Um, and, but, you know, but there are some cases where that technical choice does make sense and you just have to do a bit of education to make sure folks know what's happening. Yeah, it's it's definitely not a not a um, one size fits all. Like every situation should be evaluated differently or independently. Yeah, yeah. So with functional programming, um, I ran into a bunch of roadblocks. Uh, I'm <laughs> not better than anyone else in that aspect. But I'm curious, uh, what what functional or what roadblocks do you see people run into when they get into functional programming? Good question. I think <clears throat> there are a couple that I I kind of have noticed when trying to educate you know, friends and teach courses on the side. Um, the first, I think, is choosing the right language. I think functional programming can be scary, um, especially when you try to pick a language that is also scary. So I see some folks try to pick their first functional languages like Rust um, or Haskell, um, both of which are not completely functional, um, Haskell more so than, than Rust. But I think what I notice is that that's probably not the right choice. Right. You've never done functional programming before. Uh, picking a really hard language that has a very interesting and, and a different syntax might be the wrong choice. Whereas if you already know JavaScript, uh, let's say you're, you're working on the UI, uh, your current job, then learning React uh, in a functional style, right? whether that's uh, you know using something like Immutable JS to kind of force yourself to begin to understand immutability, and then kind of slowly stepping yourself into, okay, well, can I write the entirety of my front end using uh, functional components, right? I think that's how I would recommend someone start. Um, but then if I was a backend developer, I think there are other languages like Elixir that looks a lot like Ruby that might be a nicer place for you to start rather than trying to start with uh, something like Haskell. Um, so I, I think that's how I think about it is if you were going to start functional programming and try to pick a language that's not isn't too crazy um, that way you can easily kind of understand the basic concepts and then you can try out different languages to see uh, what they all have to offer and why they're useful um, that's my first step is pick, pick a good language to kind of baby yourself into it uh, and then the second i think would be understanding and watching you know what tutorials or, or reading books about like why functional programming exists I think if you don't understand why it exists, like why it was invented, why the tools matter, um, it can be very, very easy to kind of 
um, lose track of why you're trying to learn it. Um, I wouldn't learn it just because it's a different language, but I would learn it because it's a different paradigm that might help you think about building software different. Yeah, on both of those points, I've, um, I guess, comments. So the second point uh, in particular, I'm, I'm a huge fan and advocate of, even if you are always going to write an object-oriented programming language for the rest of your life, you still should take a look at functional programming. You can learn so much from it. And then on, on your first point, my first introduction to uh, functional programming was in college. I took a functional programming course, and we used a language called PolyML. And wow, I was, I was just so overwhelmed. It was so hard to accomplish anything. But one thing I thought was really interesting is when I did accomplish it, things that would normally be like 40 lines of code in, in Java were like three lines of code, which was really cool. Um, but I, I think I was overwhelmed because it was functional was either on or off. Like it was a light switch and you had object oriented on one side and then functional on the other side. And over the past couple of years, I've seen more and more languages um, embrace like, hey, you can kind of do both. JavaScript is a really good example where you can, if you start learning JavaScript in an object oriented language, you can, like you said, put in immutable JS and just take a piece of functional programming. And when you're ready to take the next step, just keep building up on that until you've you've almost built your own language of choice, which is really cool. Yeah, I I, I tend to agree. I think and I, so. Sort of dovetails with a talk I gave um, last year at Gig City Elixir, right? Um, called Beyond Functional Programming. And one of the things I tried to sort of elaborate in that talk was exactly your point. Right? That it's more so about understanding the different paradigms and picking the best parts to solve problems that you have in your business, right? Rather than trying to invent the perfect paradigm, because there is no such thing as the perfect programming paradigm. And I think if you look at the best companies, the best languages, uh, Scala being an example, Java being another example, um, they sort of do a really good job of picking the best parts from all the different paradigms and incorporating them into a sort of superset, right? Um, of all the best computing practices. And they kind of present it to you as one language, but it's really a, you know, a bunch of different languages. Um, I think Clojure also does a good job of that because you, know, you have interop uh, with the JVM and with Java, right? And I think that's a healthy balance. Um, and, and I think most people should really be striving to understand all the different paradigms and incorporate them rather than trying to pick the best one. Yeah, I've always viewed Scala as the gateway drug to Clojure. Um, for, because it, it's funny you mentioned the two and, and kind of compare them in a way, because from, from a grammar perspective, Scala is so flexible and, and has like, uh, just so much structure in its grammar where Clojure's grammar is very straightforward and very, very simple compared to Scala's, um, which I, I think is, uh, overwhelming at first, but whenever you kind of realize like, okay, everything's going to start with a paren, everything's going to be a function call. Um, you know, it, it feels comforting. It, it makes you feel like when you don't know what to do, you can just kind of type roughly what you think the function would be called and plug in the, the parameters you think would be there and half the time it works. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, it's a simple mental model, I think, compared to a lot of other systems. Yeah, I would completely agree. Um, there is a pattern that I think is really interesting that I've seen over the years. Uh, so functional programmers who bounce between languages or maybe are doing functional programming in a language that also supports object-oriented, a lot of the times they seem to prefer composition over inheritance. 
I was curious if you feel the same way, or if whenever you go back to an object-oriented language, you just stick with the classic OOP um, ideas. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so I, I had composition versus inheritance explained to me in undergrad um, in a Java course by a professor who was mostly a Lisp programmer. Um, so I recall him explaining com composition over inheritance um, actually as the way you should write programs in an object-oriented language, uh, which was interesting given that I didn't really know what functional programming was back then. I just knew that composition over inheritance was a good programming paradigm more generally. Um, his argument was that it you know, promoted better testing because you could test the individual things uh, and then figure out like if you could test the composition of those things um, and it just made writing your unit test easier. So I even, you know, as a non-functional programmer, I've always preferred composition, right? Because um, inheritance is a bit difficult to like, think about in your, to hold the entire world in your head once you get a few levels deep. Um, whereas composition, you can think of the different parts and you can just test them and then you can reason about how they can compose together. Um, so for me, when I program in an object-oriented language like Java or C Sharp or even PHP, I tend to still prefer simple composable modules and functions rather than um, building things that are like very complex with regards to inheritance. Um, so I, but I think that's as far as it goes, right? Like if I'm programming in a non-functional language, I don't try to bring in complex things like currying over to the world of PHP because I think at that point, I'm writing things that are hard for other developers on my team to reason about. So I think there are ways to explore functional programming in a non-functional language, but I would definitely caution people not to try to convert the Java system they're working on into a functional system. Uh, even if it makes your life easier, it might make other people's lives harder because now they have to reason about your functional code and the non-functional code. Yeah, I would definitely just echo that sentiment that if there's an existing pattern in place, um, I wouldn't try to bolt on a new pattern. There's a there's a joke about there are four competing standards and none of them are really what we want, so we should propose uh, a fix. And then the, the comic pains to the next pain and says there are five competing standards. Um, and that's just exactly what that reminds me of, is, is people just, uh, instead of actually saying, well, maybe we should try to conform to whatever's in place or saying, hey, we should evaluate this whole thing from an architecture perspective, um, just kind of bolting on their own uh, flavor of programming, which is always terrible or feels always terrible. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. And I, uh, one book I like a lot is uh, Mythical Man Month. And one of the first chapters in there is all about like why programs are written by one person tend to be simpler to understand than programs written by five people. Um, and I think there is a lot of value to trying to find the collective voice of all the programmers working on something, whether that's through conversations or through pull requests, um, but trying to figure out a language um, for how we all like to program together. That way, um, when someone comes and reads the code in the future, they can at least say, this is definitely written by five people because I can get blamed and figure out who the five people are, but it feels like it's written by one person. I think that's definitely a goal for, um, for when we're writing software together. Yeah, I've, I had never experienced that before um, I started working at LinkedIn. And one of the backend systems that we worked on, it, 
it was written by several people, although one person was flagshipping it, but it, it just felt like it was written entirely by one person. He was very strict on the code reviews and it, it bugged me a lot at the time because I was like, this works, it's fine, it's Scala, like just be happy with it. But in hindsight, I really appreciate not only him saying, no, we need to do it this way because when I had bugs or anything later, it felt like one code base written by one person, but also I felt like I grew as a developer because of that, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge, I think, as the as the person often trying to enforce those standards on my teams. Um, I think it's a, it's a delicate balance because you, you want to allow that freedom for developers on your team while at the same time uh, making sure that the developers who come after you, like five years, are not pulling their hair out. Um, or if someone wakes up in the middle of the night, they can at least understand like what a comment means in this line uh, and what a comment means in the next line, right? Making sure that those comments make sense together and are not just random, you know, differing opinions on like what the software does. Yeah, I think when you have um, a differing opinion on the way something should be done, that should start with a conversation and not a pull request. Because uh, there's there's too much work and too much heart put into it at the point where a pull request is created. And when, when someone, like in my case, says, no, this is wrong, and it's empirically not wrong, it works, um, but it's it's wrong to to the standards that were set forth in that code base. That feels bad, and I think that's why it uh, felt so hurtful at the time. Although the person had no hurtful intentions at all, he was uh, an extremely nice guy. Um, but yeah, I think I just took offense because I put a bunch of work into it, and then, like it it felt right, but it wasn't for the standards that were set in place. Yeah, yeah, and I think one thing that helps with that is is a not just a style guide on like. This is why this is how we write X thing in our code base, but also like a style philosophy guide, right? Like, this is why we write this thing this way, and like these are the reasons, right? Um, this is why we comment in this way. Um, I think that tends to help newer developers. That way, they can kind of do a check before they submit the PR, rather than at the PR level trying to question, um, because sometimes there is a change that needs to be made to the style and the philosophy. And if that's written out in a clear way, we can like have a debate about it rather than developer X who's in charge of the project or flagshipping. Sort of like uh, the, the dominant tyrant in the situation. I completely agree with that. I've been very fortunate with the, currently, or the company that I currently work for, TeamSnap, to uh, be able to take ownership of one of our front-end code bases, which I, I guess is probably my area of expertise although I like to consider myself a full-stack developer. Um, and one of the things I did was add to the readme, we prefer this over this, and then uh, turn that into a link with documentation pointing to why we prefer that over that. So we prefer functional React components over class components. We prefer um, hooks over other, other things, and just stuff like that. Uh, and that's been really valuable, but it leads me to my next question, which is how do you get people to read the readme? Good question. Um, I, I think reminding people, you know, so when someone joins, giving them the readme and, and saying, or giving them a style guide or, or your values or whatever it is you want them to read, giving it to them early and often, right? Um, so when someone joins um, in Slack, right? When someone asks you a question, hey, why do we do X, right? As opposed to like blurbing some random you know, phrases to them in Slack, just send them the readme, 
right? Um, and if it's not in the README, ask them to add it to README, right? Or you add it to README, right? So I think making sure the README, whatever uh, you know, you're storing that in, is a living, breathing document that isn't just here are some standards we had five years ago, um, but is a living document that is useful every day. Um, and then making sure that people feel empowered to change that read, um, even if it's something that you disagree with, right? Um, if you can have that debate, whether it's in the comments or just in person, making sure people feel like the README is something they have ownership of makes it so much easier because it then doesn't feel like a sort of a, a rule from above. It feels more like this is an agreed upon norm. Um, I, I, I think to me, I've seen that be helpful is giving people ownership uh, as well as reminding them early and often that the README exists. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. I wish there was a way to, well, first, let me let me backtrack a moment and say that I actually think we're pretty good at um, reading the readmes for TeamSnap. There are a lot of repos that we work with, so it's become a common pattern to kind of read them before you start working in them, which is great. I, I think that's the point. Um, but I kind of wish there was a way to, and there might be, uh, a good way to set up like a, a hook. So whenever you pull down a repo or you clone a repo, it either cats the readme out to your terminal, which might be too much, or it just sends out, like uh, echoes a little reminder, hey, there's a readme, you should probably read this here before starting any development. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that's hard. You know, I think a lot of developers are used to just checking something out and kind of getting started mucking around with the code. Um, like I'll give you an instance. I'm, I'm building a developer tool, or I was building a developer tool last job, and more often than not, I'd say 90% of the questions I would get asked were in the README, right? Um, and as opposed to answering them in Slack, which seems mean, I would just send a link to the README with, you know, something highlighted from the README, like, hey, this is the section, or look at section A of README. I think sometimes that's the best tactic is just to remind people that, hey, there is a readme um, because sometimes most readmes are useless. Um, so I think some developers have gotten used to just not looking at them. But if you have a good readme, direct people to it. And uh, I, I wish there was something like, let me Google that for you um, for readmes, but there isn't. So I think for now, it's just drop the link in Slack and let people figure it out. I always feel weird just sending someone a link to a file and being like, here you go, figure it out. Um, but but you do bring up a really good point that it does remind people that one, there's a readme, and two, the answer to this question was in the readme, so the answer to your, your next question might also be in the readme. So I really like that. Yeah, and I, I think you don't have to be that mean. You can you know, you know can say like, hey, the answer to the question is in the readme. Um, please let me know if something's missing, right? Um, because more often than not, if something's missing and they don't have the context, that's an opportunity to re to improve the README. Um, and so you want that feedback as opposed to trying to you know give a bespoke answer to every question. Yeah, I like that. And that also makes sure that um, you're in a situation where the README is the source of truth. It's not the README and the archives in Slack and the archives in Confluence and all sorts of things like that. Um, and we get back to our competing standards issue again. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's so true. So circling back to your talk, you said it was at Elixir Days? That's D-A-Z-E, right? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, 
so I remember watching that and you mentioned closure and we've talked about it a little bit now. So I just, I just have a couple questions. It's one of my favorite languages. Um, so, and you said you were doing some closure at a previous employer. Is that correct? Yeah. First job out of school was working for a nonprofit startup that was all written in closure and closure script. That's awesome. I have, uh, been paid once to work with a closure code base. And unfortunately the plan was to migrate from closure to something else and not maintain it going forward. So I'm a little envious that you had the opportunity to write closure professionally. Yeah. I think that company is still writing closure full time. I have a old friend uh, who's the CTO there and they're still, they're keeping on. So how do you find that closure compares to Elixir? Like, uh, are there any key similarities besides the fact that they're both functional and focus on immutable data structures? I would say that's probably where the difference stops. Um, mostly because Elixir is sort of based on Erlang and Ruby. Um, so in a way, it's, you know, some mix of like Prolog, Ruby. It's sort of, it's sort of very different from a syntactic perspective. Um, whereas Closure is clearly a list, right? And like uh, adheres pretty strongly to, to the list philosophies. Um, so I would say they're probably very different as languages when you're using them. But the mental model of I can't change this thing and I only have functions to compute what I need to compute is very similar across both. And so going from Lisp to Elixir is much, or Closure to Elixir is much easier than going from, let's say, Java to either of those languages. Um, so I'd say, like, if you if you've already done one of them, it wouldn't hurt to spend a weekend trying the other one. If you've done Elixir, try some Closure this weekend. If you've done Closure, try some Elixir this weekend. Like, it's not going to be that bad. It might take you a couple hours to grok the syntax, um, but the hard part, which is the functional programming aspect of it, you'll already have locked in. I have a lot of respect for both the JVM and the Beam. So I, I also would, uh, I guess, yet again, echo that. Like, give them both a try. They're both very interesting languages. Um, and you'll. I guarantee you'll learn, if you haven't used them before, you'll learn something trying to use either of them. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, in, in a polyglot world where you can run your microservice to do X um, in X language, I, I don't think a world in which you have some things in your stack running in Clojure and some things running in Elixir, it's not such a bad world. Um, it's probably a world more similar to the one we all want, right? Which is use the language you think solves the problem right. Um, as long as you enjoy the language, it's probably useful. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm a big fan of the right tool for the right job mentality. So we're going to take a quick break and we will be back to talk a little bit more about ParrotMob in depth, um, if that's fine with you. Sounds good. Awesome. So we'll be back in just a moment. All right, and we're back. Thanks for sticking around through the break. Um, so Osa and I were talking a lot about functional programming, Elixir, Clojure, a couple other languages as well. Uh, we're going to take the next bit of time to dive into ParrotMob and some of the the languages and tech, uh, technology and even techniques that are being used to build ParrotMob. So, um, Osa, I'm curious. I, I, actually, I guess I'm curious exactly that. 
Um, so what languages or tech are you using to build ParrotMob? Good question. So the primary backend language is Elixir um, that powers uh, everything from the sending pipeline to the APIs um, and serves the main app. The front end is all in React.js and um, definitely a heavy functional style on the front end, so lots of functional components. Um, and, and that's the stack for now. Um, we might be evolving a little bit, might be a bit more Erlang on the back end, um, but for now it's, it's primarily Elixir. Cool. Do you use um, like RabbitMQ? I know that's also written in Erlang. Not that that means you have to use it, but I was just curious. Um, no, um, we do not use RabbitMQ mostly because we we find that Elixir has a lot of good primitives for doing things like queuing, um, just with native within the Elixir ecosystem. Um, and for most of our queuing needs, we've actually just been using Postgres as a way to enqueue jobs. Um, there's a pretty good job system called Oben um, that's pretty good in, uh, in the Elixir ecosystem, and it just uses Postgres as the, the backing store for all of your, your queues. Um, so we've been using that a lot, but we foresee moving into something like Kafka in the next few months um, as like the pipeline starts to get a little heavy. Cool. Um, and with that, are you, um, sorry, I, I heard you say React.js, so you're using JavaScript and not TypeScript or any other alternative? No, we're actually just using JavaScript, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and then for deployments, are you using Docker? Are you containerizing things? Do you just deploy directly to a beam? Uh, yeah, so we actually just deployed directly to Heroku. Um, we're pretty big fans of Heroku, um, mostly from the, I think as a person who's built CI/CD pipelines before, uh, as a person who's built CI/CD platforms before, I'm a big fan of Heroku because I think I it abstracts all the parts away that I don't want to do, which is uh, taking some code and running it uh, on some stateless box somewhere that just kind of comes on and off. And then being able to scale that horizontally is something we look at as being very valuable. Um, but we eventually will move to GCP uh, and, and run on GKE and just put everything in a container. Nice. Yeah, not a functional language at all on my end, but um, I have been using Go quite a bit. And I was just thrilled with how simple it was to build uh, a web server in Go and, well, specifically thrilled at how simple deploying on Heroku was. I uh, filled out a form on their website to create a new app, and I think I just git push Heroku master, and it just worked. I didn't have to define a proc file or anything. It just assumed uh, and assumed correctly, which is always nice. Yeah, I, I'm still a huge fan of the 12-factor app manifesto and, and that kind of stuff. Like, I think most developers... One, one joke I heard, uh, I think Kelsey Hightower told this, is uh, most developers, when given the task of building some software for their business, uh, inevitably also decide to build their own continuous integration and deployment platforms, uh, just as a sort of fun exercise in building software. But I think the older I get, I, the truth is no one really wants to become as good as Heroku is at maintaining boxes. Um, and no one actually can, uh, not the individual developer or team. Um, so I think w we should question a lot why we continue to do that, because I think a lot of the postmortems post I see at, at 
current jobs and past jobs uh, come down to just somebody messed up a salt script or someone messed up an Ansible script, right? Um, which kind of begs the question: Why? Why are we? Why are we doing that? Is there? Are we saving that much money? Um, so yeah, I I think in the spirit of simplicity, uh, I try to keep things simple when it comes to deployment. Well, it's so cheap too. Like that API I have running on a hobby dyno, and it's uh, seven bucks a month. Wow. And if I were to instead have you know um, an engineer, it, it could be anywhere from. Uh, 50 grand if you're extremely lowballing someone to you know hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just to get a good platform in place yeah um so when you look at seven dollars a month compared to even like the bare minimum of 50 grand it's it's a no-brainer and then when you actually say well what's a realistic salary it's even more of a no-brainer so yeah yeah let's not add in like the actual cost of wearing the ec2 instance or you know like those, those are also costs that i think people kind of just count as free um yeah yeah very true so i was curious are you is this elixir app phoenix or are you doing something else just otp uh yeah it's a phoenix app um it's a phoenix app because i think phoenix gives you a lot of cool tooling for building uh, web web apis um which most of the app is just a web api that serves or it's a json api rather that serves the React front end, um, and the React front end is actually uh, uses just the default scaffold that comes with Phoenix. Um, so Phoenix, when you bring up a Phoenix app, actually has a React JS app kind of installed within it. Um, you have to do a little bit of tweaking to get it up to like modern React standards, but then you're kind of set, right? You have a React app um, that can talk to your backend, which is also within the same Phoenix project. Um, so it, it's been very simple for us because, or very useful for us, because when we had uh, two other developers come in and start helping, um, all I had to do was point them at the Phoenix repo and they could just do a uh, simple mix Phoenix server and they had the entirety of the project, both the React uh, and, the, and, the, and the backend stuff running in one command and all they had to just go to a browser and live reload and all that stuff was already baked in. So they just started writing code day one so for anyone who's listening and may not be familiar with phoenix um phoenix is the last time i checked the biggest and most popular framework on elixir uh for web development i i also would maybe and someone might uh yell at me for this but i would also probably say it's it's the rails of the elixir ecosystem it's focused on developer friendliness and has a lot of really nice tools built into it yeah i think that's a great characterization of phoenix um very useful and um, has a lot of stuff built in that you wouldn't want to figure out yourself, like how to talk to a database, um, how to do WebSocket. Um, I think the, the best example that I've seen is Phoenix was able to handle a million WebSockets on, on one one box, which is I think a pretty me medium-sized EC2 instance. Um, so it's a language that's built to, if you want to do real-time concurrent stuff, or if you just want to build a web app, um, in a language like Elixir and not pull your hair out, I think Phoenix is the way to go. And if you eventually decide to scale or do crazy things like a million concurrent WebSockets, it will let you do that on the same instance with the same ergonomics as uh, building a, a regular web app. Yeah, you don't have to find yourself in a situation where when someone on the product side says, 
oh, we need this to be real time. You go, oh, crap, we have to rebuild everything because Phoenix will just let you swap it over. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of, I found at least past experience, like going from an app that's handling not much traffic to an app that's handling a lot of traffic with the Phoenix app is just little to no work, right? You just kind of let the thing keep cranking. Um, whereas with other things, you have to start to think about scalability and have to start rewriting parts of it. Um, you very quickly find yourself using RabbitMQ for everything, right? Um, I think with, with Elixir, you can kind of cheat a little bit and kind of just get some scalability for free. You also mentioned uh, that it's a JSON API. I'm curious, are, are you RESTful, REST-ish, or GraphQL or something? It's, it's restful um, as, as strict as we can be. Um, in, in Phoenix, you can define resources. Um, and so if you define a resource, you can get you know, all your typical REST endpoints to reject your puts. Um, you post essentially for free. Um, all you have to do is just specify it as a resource. Um, so we were pretty strictly restful because the, the React front end um, does a lot of the heavy lifting um, in terms of manipulating data. So we haven't had to do any any fancy things. We just kind of supply stuff to the front end, and then the front end does the the magic. Okay. Um, do you have a build pipeline? Yes. Um, right now, we're actually just using the we're using Git, GitHub for most of everything. Um, so stuff gets you know, built and tested in GitHub. And then we actually just do a Git Heroku push master um, whenever we're ready to ship something abroad. And we just use the regular build pack um, that come with Phoenix uh, through Heroku. We don't really do anything fancy. We, we mostly just use GitHub to run tests to make sure no one's like breaking stuff before we merge the master. Yeah, for any, for any junior devs that we have listening, like just to echo that again, it is potentially that simple to just have like a working CI, C, uh, CI and possibly CD pipeline. Um, like you can build something, you can leverage uh, existing tools like GitHub Actions or Travis CI or something to run your tests. And you can literally make pushing to production as simple as Git, push, Heroku, master. Yeah, and I, I think one, one reason that I tend to default to that approach um, is because working at MailChimp on an app that you know had millions of users, we would deploy every single commit to master to production immediately, right? And I think that kind of continuous delivery is uncommon and seems strange, um, but actually is much cheaper from a mental overhead perspective. Because if you assume that everything you commit to master goes to fraud, it makes you more careful with merging to master. Um, but in a way, actually, it makes you less risk averse because if something goes to master and breaks production, just revert, right? Um, as opposed to trying to worry about, you know, the state of the world, just revert back to the last good commit. Um, and usually that commit should be five minutes earlier, right? If you're committing to master often early. Um, so that's one reason we tend to, I tend to avoid building complex build pipelines. Um, and just kind of deploy a thing. And if it breaks, we can reason about how to fix what broke. Um, much easier than we can reason about trying to test a month's work of development um, before shipping out. Yeah, and when you ship one commit and something's broken, you know that, that one something in that one commit, which ideally is pretty small, is what broke it, as opposed to 
a three-month build um, cycle where you say, okay, well, we thought everything was fine, but one of our you know 2,500 commits in the past three months broke something, so let's go figure out what it was. Yeah. Oh, man. Good luck. <laughs> you know. Your build pipeline um, sounds like it runs tests, uh, which is great. Um, it, I guess it doesn't produce binaries because you have Heroku taking care of all of that. Yep. Cool. Okay. Well, I, so I'm curious um, with Parrot Mob or anything, I guess, really, um, if you run into any issues and like uh, anything that was major or a real pain to work around, were you ever like, man, maybe I shouldn't be doing this? Um, you mean with regards to the Elixir language or just in general whichever, whichever you prefer. prefer yeah so i think you know definitely the definitely war stories to be told uh i think one that is kind of fun is uh i was using the amnesia database which is a built-in uh, in-memory data store that comes with the erlang runtime i was using that uh pretty extensively at a job uh two jobs ago at a startup where we Essentially, we're updating IoT devices in the field using this uh, this microservice that I had built, and the service would essentially let devices call home. Uh, when they called home, we would you know give them a version to update themselves to, and then they would call the service back, and we would give them the packages uh, and just serve those from S3. Um, but we kept all of this in memory just to make the system really fast, um, and for some reason, we started having lots of crashes of our amnesia database. Um, again, this is an in-memory data store, uh, similar to Redis. Uh, and figuring out why my amnesia, my amnesia database was crashing was actually extremely painful, um, precisely because it was an Erlang, primarily an Erlang data store that no one cared to document the failure cases well. Um, so to find out why it was failing, you have to go into the Erlang crash logs, uh, which are by themselves like very cryptic logs. And you have to go to the Erlang man pages to figure out how to decipher the logs. Itself. Um, so that was not fun. Uh, that was many late nights trying to figure out why my database kept, kept dying. Uh, eventually, we figured it out. And we actually moved away from that database and moved um, to DynamoDB. But that was not fun, like not being able to tell my boss at the time, like, this thing keeps dying. I'm not sure why. And I can't interpret these logs because they are very unique. Um, that, that, was a, that was an interesting experience. I think I always warn people who are thinking about adopting Erlang or Elixir is uh, it's going to take you a little bit longer to debug things because there sometimes isn't a stack overflow for that, right? Like, there's so few people in the world doing. Um, hardcore Erlang, and even a lot of folks doing Elixir might never have run into the issue that you that you are having. Um, or it might be that you know uh, I've worked at places where we discovered bugs in Phoenix, right? Like in the core, you know, framework itself, we found the bug um, because we were stress testing the language and the framework at the same time. And I think we got a lot of help from people like Chris McCord just by reaching out to them on Slack, but uh, it's definitely something to keep in mind that Stack Overflow is not going to answer every question you have when you try to use a language that's very new or in the case of Erlang, very old. 
Yeah, that is um, really, really good uh, words from the wise on that. I, there are so many languages. Closure is another really good one where uh, you're going to be hit or miss on Stack Overflow because it's it's just not. I won't say it's esoteric because it's not, um, but it but it is not popular. Um, and I would say Elixir is probably more popular than Closure, but still, it's it's no Ruby, it's no C, no Python, um, and for good cause and it, it is in my opinion both of those languages are great because they're not those things but at the same time it does mean that you don't get a lot of help the community is much smaller less people are posting random stuff on stack overflow i actually would say maybe specifically in closure more if you were to segment the user base i would say most of the devs are more senior focused um than like junior closure devs that's doesn't seem to be as much of a thing so those people might be more uh, capable of debugging and working through their problems without, you know, posting about it or getting community help. Mm -hmm. That error that you ran into, speaking of closure, was it worse than old school closure error messages? Because that was the, that made me repulsed when I first started learning closure. I would say they were pretty, pretty similar. Like the level of pain I felt at the time uh, when debugging closure early on and debugging Erlang early on. We're, I think Elixir is really good about hiding errors from you and like kind of interpreting the errors and helping you along, whereas Erlang does not, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, they, will, they will tell you exactly what it looks like um, when you fail, and sometimes it's hard to like interpret the failure message um, if you don't have context. But um, I think the, the Erlang man pages are really good, though. So I, I would say don't be afraid. Just try it. But know that there will be a little bit of pain. Yeah, that's going to the man pages. We ran into an issue at work not too long ago with, um, I think we were like an out-of-memory exception with an Erlang uh, library or package. I'm not really sure what the Erlang appropriate term is. Um, and it was it was throwing a very cryptic error message and it was so hard to figure out what it meant. It, and it ended up being an out of memory and it's like, just tell me it's an out of memory. <laughs> like, like, it's not that hard. But um, yeah, I mean, things were, things were different when Erlang was being written, so. Yeah, different time, different time. So if you could go back and, and change anything with Parrot Mob, um, would you like maybe use a different language, design pattern, library, tools, framework, anything? Good point. I, I think going back, um, no, I, I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think we've made a lot of smart choices early on to, to move quickly, um, react in pure JS, um, as opposed to TypeScript, Elixir, with Postgres, I think is probably the same choice to make if you're doing a company day one, just because um, all of those things can be hosted on the Heroku Hobby Dino, right? So you can pretty cheaply iterate. Um, so for us, it made sense. Um, I think we, we definitely looked at TypeScript, we looked at ClojureScript as possible options, um, but we always have to keep in mind the fact that A, we were hiring some contractors, um, to work for us, and B, we needed to move quickly. So I think those things kind of limited the choices we would have made, um, irregardless of like the things we love to play with. Um, 
we really wanted to introduce Kafka day one. Um, but that was one of those things that, as a person who's used Kafka before, it, it didn't make sense, even though it was so enjoyable to like reason about our system as a series of producers and consumers. It just didn't make sense to build that solution for our for our workflow because it it just requires so much mental overhead um, for new developers that I, I just found it gratuitous. Um, so yeah, no no big changes we would make from day one. Um, I think the data store and the, the entire stack are solid, safe choices. Um, Elixir being the most interesting. Uh, of those tweaks, I think React and Postgres are known quantities at this point. Yeah, you can. You, if you have an issue with either of those, Stack Overflow is almost certainly going to be able to help you. But Elixir, that's eh, a coin flip. Maybe, maybe not. So, what's next for Parrot Mob? Uh, how do you get ideas for for what features to add or what what to work on next? Yeah, so we we are pretty heavy about talking to users. Um, so everyone on the team. Uh, myself, the other developer, and the designer are pretty active in in doing things like going to Shopify meetups and talking to users, um, talking to users in our own uh, sort of network. And and we have about a hundred people who signed up for our beta, and so we actually have a good list of people that we can send out um, feature requests to or um, surveys to. And, and so we try to be active in that community because we find that that's the best way to get new ideas for what to build next. Um, and in terms of what's next for us more generally, we're currently in the process of talking to, to investors to raise some seed capital. Um, and we're also looking at a few of the sort of accelerators that we think are, could be good partners for us. So Techstars, 500, as well as YC. Um, so we're in that process now of thinking about how, how we want to raise capital. And, and what a good partner uh, in that looks like for us. Cool, that's awesome. That's um, inspiring as well. I always like hearing about very early stage startups and, and kind of how people uh, handle that because there's there's so much about like you know Series C funding and that's really public because it's it's a big deal at that point. And um, I don't know. I've always just been more curious about what pre-seed funding looks like and the fact that you have 100 beta users signed up. It's and have a functioning product and platform is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 really excited to go through this journey. I think um, we all love building products, and like we like building products for people. So um, it's mostly just cool to see people use the thing and and kind of observe them, watch them find bugs, watch them find you know places where they want additional features, and kind of go through that with them. So we've talked a lot about functional programming. Um, I'm curious if you have any good guides, tutorials, or, or documentation that you'd recommend for people who are interested in learning more. Yeah, so a couple of things I recommend. There's this old uh, GitHub post. Uh, it's called Reframe. Um, it's an old post by some of the folks who started, uh, an, I think, an early version of ClojureScript. So this is pre-ClojureScript, actually. Um, and it sort of talks about reactive programming on the front end, which for me was very helpful because uh, that reframe doc presented Redux before Redux existed. Um, and I think Redux was highly based on, on that framework that they had laid out. Uh, I don't think they ever invented the language. It was just sort of a, 
I think it was a workshop group or something of the sort. I always go back to that once a year just to remind myself because that's where I first understood reactive and functional programming. Um, in fact, they kind of coined the term FRP or functional reactive programming. And I think those kinds of things give you context um, on why this entire field makes sense. Um, the second thing I always go back to are all of Rich Hickey's talks. Um, simple, uh, simple Made Easy, um, or hammock-driven development, like things like that are helpful for me because it's sometimes easy to kind of get trapped in the functional programming or whatever programming language you choose. It's easy to get trapped in the ecosystem. And I think higher level talks, they're not really about closure or Elixir, but just about like the nature of programming tend to be helpful. So anything or any video or lecture from Joe Armstrong any video or lecture from someone like Francesco Cesarini, um, those kinds of talks help you understand like the history of functional programming, but more importantly, the history of programming. Um, anything by Alan Kay on YouTube will kind of get you a long way to understand why these fields exist. Um, and then just writing a lot of code, I think. Trying different languages, like uh, I think the stuff that uh, Bruce Tate has around seven languages in seven weeks are really useful. Um, not being too tethered to one language, but just trying the different ones and seeing what you like about them and maybe what you dislike. Because um, that that's also half the battle is figuring out what you as a developer care about. Yeah, I uh, completely agree. I love all of Rich Hickey's talks. Um, I think it's Simple Made Easy as well. One of them has a bunch of Java examples and kind of how to take a more functional approach on Java, which was really nice. Mm. Um, I'll, I usually don't plug, uh, resources, but I am going to plug one as well. I am a huge fan of Daniel Higginbottom's, uh, closure for the brave and true. The, there's an ebook. It's great. You should buy it and support him. But if you don't want to buy it and support him or can't afford it, he has the entire thing online, uh, at, I think it's closure, closurebravetrue.com or closure for the brave and true.com. You should Google it and make sure you get the right one. It'll be the first thing that pops up on Google. So, um, Osa, if people are interested in following you or your work, where can they do that? So the best place to follow ParrotMob would be ParrotMob.com. That's kind of the primary focus for me at this point. Um, and then in terms of following me personally, uh, I'm always on, on Twitter posting things uh, at OsaGaius on Twitter. That's mostly where I post kind of things I'm reading, resources I'm finding, or even you know conference talks or articles that I'm releasing. Uh, they all kind of go there. Um, so that's probably the best place. Awesome. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Design Doc Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Seipert. You can find me on Twitter at B-R-A-D-C-Y-P-E-R-T and at bradseipert.com. Thanks for tuning in.